0: Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of The Publisher Lab. Join alongside me today, as you've often heard me say, Ms. Shelby Kang. Shelby, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks. Sorry, I'm a little slow today. I don't know what day it is or what month it is.
0: I'm that way too. I've got a brand new puppy at home and he decided at 5 o'clock this morning that it was time that we all got up. And so (laughs) I got up and went for a run with, uh, with the new puppy. So I think we're all maybe just a little slow moving today.
1: Yes, um, but...
0: So, sort of like maybe Q4 a little bit. Q4, kind of, we ease into Q4, I feel like. I see a lot of people in the space talking about, well, you've got people talking about, uh, you know, all the search updates, and you've got, I've seen a lot of people asking about, oh, it's Q4 is a slow start for ad rates and things along those lines for publishers. Um, but rest assured, I, I that is extremely common. I, I hear that every every time this year. And I think you can look at things like the ad revenue index and things along those lines to see that, um, yeah, Q4 usually always picks up.
1: Right, yeah, I was just about to say, you know, we'll really see things pick up closer to Thanksgiving and Black Friday and the um, holiday season. So something to kind of look forward to in the coming weeks.
0: Yeah, I always think it's interesting uh, just that, you know, Black Friday, um, and you mentioned Thanksgiving as well, which is American holiday, just so, how, how many things that are these uh, kind of more more American based, uh, I guess um, dates and date marks and things along those lines drive such a huge uplift in terms of um, uh, in terms of ad rates and things along those lines in the space. And I think one of the things that people often miss is just how impactful events across the globe can impact these things. Um, like I, I think next year. there'll be a big boost in ad rates overall just because of the election, uh, sans any kind of major economic downturn. Um, But yeah, it's it's amazing just how powerful America is in particular in terms of uh, what it drives in terms of digital advertising and things along those lines.
1: Right. Uh, Speaking of You know, the U.S. and different powers that we have, the um, Federal Trade Commission has come out with some new rulings. Um, The FTC is starting to crack down on the sales of fake social media followers and likes, um, along with postings of fake reviews. So recently, a Florida businessman was fined $2.5 million over the sale of fake indicators of social media influence. Um, They also issued a warning to skincare brand Sunday Riley. Um, The FTC says that um, they ordered or they had fake reviews written of her company's products on Sephora's website. And they also ordered employees to write some fake reviews as well. Um, so obviously, this is focused on social media and retail brands, but both cases can have a significant implications for the broader digital marketplace. So how can this affect digital publishers?
0: I mean, I think potentially in a lot of, a lot of ways. And how funny is it that it's a Florida man? Right. Uh, for those that maybe are the, the uninitiated, those that, that don't live here in America, it's kind of a classic line to say Florida man, because there's all kinds of crazy headlines that come out of that state. Um, but yeah i I think uh I mean how often i mean think 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 personally what what's something that you've uh, bought online recently that you've uh looked for reviews for
1: um a dog carrier a dog carrier <laughs> like a purse to carry my small dog in so
0: when you when you were looking for this what what types of like uh i guess what types of resources popped up and where did you search for
1: yeah your... well, I was looking on Amazon, so I was looking primarily at amazon reviews um and we've i've heard a lot of stories about fake amazon yeah, reviews absolutely. and things like that too um but i mean i didn't notice anything that was suspicious but it's really almost impossible to tell whether these are true or not i think the reason why um sunday riley got caught is because emails were uh leaked of the owner asking yeah. um employees to to create some fake reviews but as a consumer, it's really hard to tell the difference.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's really hard to tell the difference. And it's really hard to trust uh, things that you read in a lot of cases that are even positive. Um, something that, you know, it's like a dirty se- secret in the SaaS space um, is that, like, if you search the best whatever software, uh, cloud management software, whatever it is, you um, Whatever isn't like a Capterra style website that's like basically an aggregator of reviews, which is sort of pay to play as well. Like a lot of those, I think they've changed their model, maybe not. Where you could write a re- you could go in and write a review for whatever it is, um, and then there'd be a button there and it'd be like, "Would you like more information about this software?" And if you went in, and you said yes, then Capterra would then go to that software company and say, "Hey, if you want these leads we collected for you, you have to pay us and like, wait a minute, like it's kind of a bait and switch. Um, but even outside of those, if you click on like an article from like a business insider and it's like the five best cloud management software, at the bottom you'll see like a link where it's like not featured here, but would like to be get in contact with us. So you realize that like even organic results, which I think Google is cracking down on pretty hard, are being bought and sold in a lot of cases. And I think consumers sort of realize this, but like you said, it can be really, really hard. And so you have to go like what information do I trust? Do you trust something because it, it already aligns with maybe like a bias that you came into it with? Like think about restaurant reviews. How many times do you go and you look at reviews of a restaurant and your concern is that like maybe the, it's not like authentic Italian or something. And then one of the, re, one the only one-star review is like not really Italian. You're like, I knew it, you know?
1: Yeah, I'm definitely probably... Um guilty of doing that.
0: I think we all are. I think that there's probably something biological about it. And I think that that's why uh, for publishers, if you, I mean, there's a lot of publishers that, that write reviews or, um, or specialize in this, this type of thing. And I think um, it's really important to try to make sure that you work on your disclosures and your credibility as it relates to these things. Um, I do think that that's uh, like completely removed from this. That is something that Google has tracked down on as well. The more credible you can be and the more unbiased that you can be, specifically with links and things along those lines, I think is really, really important. And then as it relates to social media stuff, I actually think this is really good for publishers because it takes some of the, it makes it, I guess, more frightening for quote unquote influencers and people that are building on top of social platforms um, to try to like build an audience that you can kind of leverage for advertisers like oh hey um, I'm a beauty influencer uh, L'Oreal if you give me X amount I'm going to review your products really favorably um, I think L'Oreal doesn't have those dollars to put into that the influencers don't have the ability to do that that means L'Oreal is going to put more money into to real legitimate uh, publishing businesses and um, I think it makes everybody work a little bit harder but that's probably a good thing
1: right All right, our next topic is from Adweek, and it's about USA Today and how they're rebuilding their website. So they're rolling out a new website this week that executives hope will better organize its content for readers and make the brand more transparent. Um, So executives studied user behaviors, although it didn't say how or exactly what they studied, for over a year before determining what needed to be tweaked on the site, which now includes a yellow label to clearly designate opinion pieces in an effort to be more transparent. So developers also focused on making the website load faster. Um, The site offers the same amount of ad inventory, but USA Today can now pair brands alongside messages that are labeled in the same color to increase brand awareness. So it's a little bit confusing, but for example, a Starbucks ad might be paired with content that's tagged with like Starbucks colored green label. Um, So the COO of USA Today said that obviously display is a big part of what we do today and will continue to do in the future with high impact performance he also said the use of color and celebrating that heritage was an easy way to create more demarcation between news and non-news stories and it's easier for advertisers to embrace that and be comfortable with it so interesting that they do a web design like right at the start of q4 yeah uh, Um, classic
0: bad bad advice yes Um, yeah i mean it it never ceases to amaze me how many uh, publishers even enterprise ones will make these kind of like basic one-on-one mistakes that, you know, you'll see independent publishers that are, you know, three people strong uh, do a better job of. But um, regardless of the the redesign, the beginning in Q4, um, it's, it, I understand why they did it. It's more about the stakeholders involved. And, um, you know, anybody that's worked in a big bureaucratic organization or understands bureaucracy knows that Sometimes a lot of people will do a lot of work, not because it's the right thing to do or because it's overly effective, but because they're trying to make people happy. And this is an ecosystem version of that. Uh, I was interviewed for an article uh, by Digiday Reporter probably three or four weeks ago. And one of the biggest things was they were asking me if we had any data on or had seen that users or visitors to publisher sites had been put off by particular types of ads and if that had affected return visitor rates or user experiences or you know publisher feedback or ad rates or anything basically anything and i i thought immediately we're talking about you know bad bad ads malvertising you know these you know bad actors that will do like uh, malicious mobile redirects and things like that that get into the ecosystem, and they he was quick to point. I said, "No, no, no. I'm talking more specifically about you're a vegan and you see a uh, an advertisement for Blue Apron that involves steak or meat or something along those lines." And I was, I was like, "So, so what is the premise? What are what is it that we think here?" And they said, "Well, we we have a psychologist that says that this is they've done some kind of survey and they found that people will will." Disfavorably view a publication or media outlet if the the ads on it don't align with their values or something like that, and so we've I I mean I've anecdotally for years here have got have been able to see um, publishers that are concerned because visitors that are there there's a very small vocal minority of people that if they see something like that won't email the publisher and the publishers obviously like in a lot of cases some of them are sensitive to that. Uh, a lot of times they're like, you know, what am I going to do? But what's funny is is there's no impact on roof return visitor rate. There's no impact on ad rates. There's no impact on traffic. Even when you've got the malicious redirects, um, WebMD, I think I've gotten more on that website than any other. And then the ESPN app, I get so many inside of those. I it does not change my browsing behavior at all. It's what we talked about a couple episodes ago about boycotts. It's like people seem to get up in arms but even then, it's like when they measure it long term, it doesn't seem like – it seems like everybody just tends kind of to go back to normal. Um, I think it's sort of the same thing when it comes to that sort of thing. But I think USA Today, in this case, sort of is aligning these colors because they're trying to offer brands like, look, we've done this. And then also to users or to I, – I don't know. There's probably some board members or somebody that they're trying to make happy.
1: Yeah. It, it, I totally agree with that. I guess – the value in that for users is that you can easily identify what is going to be, you know, an um, I like objective it. article versus opinion. I actually
0: do like that. Um, I was reading something in, oh, it was What's what's New in Publishing? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an opinion piece on Facebook, the new Facebook news tab. And um, it identified that right away. And I was like, okay. And I actually saw who, and then I wanted to know who the author was and I, I knew them. They were a moderator for us at MediaTel in London a couple years ago. I was like, I'm very interested in his opinion about this, right? So sometimes opinion is actually something that you want to read but sometimes you get halfway through an article and then you realize like it's an opinion piece and you're like, this is, I want the news of this. Right,
1: right? yeah. All right. Our next topic is Deadspin.com um, and they're in an ad standoff with its owner G/O Media. So, are you are you familiar with this? No,
0: but these standoffs are super interesting to me, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I, and I like Deadspin, so I'm interested to have to hear this.
1: Yeah, this one's got a little bit of drama. So mm. G slash O Media, which was formed in 2019 when a private equity firm brought the Gizmodo Media Group from Univision, um, so they own Deadspin, Gizmodo, the Onion, Clickhole, and a few other digital properties and claim to attract the largest audience of 18- to 44-year-olds available anywhere.
0: I doubt that, but <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> That's what already they claim. not with a great start here <laughs> with the facts.
1: So earlier this week, Deadspin staff posted an article addressing complaints to the autoplay and sound on ads. Um, the article said that the staff agrees with reader complaints and urged them to complain to management at O Media. Many other sites in the network ran the story, too, before they were reportedly moved without notice. Um, So these stories were removed by, you know, the parent company because, for obvious reasons. So the GMG union, which is the Gizmodo Media Group Union for Digital Writers, has been keeping track of all this drama on Twitter. So they shared the original Deadspin posts that asked readers to complain to management, and they've also publicly called out the CEO for firing the Deadspin deputy editor as a result of this incident. So I think this is just kind of a good example of what can happen when a website gets bought out or when, you know, you lose the majority stakehold in it. And just kind of that side where it's like the writers at Deadspin versus yeah. the media owner.
0: Yeah, uh, talk about just people being on a completely different page and um, no one, no one looking for any sort of compromise there. Um, and that's probably a nice way of saying it. This is a story that's as old as publishing. Uh, this was a familiar story with Snopes a while back. Uh, proper media, I believe, and, and them had a, some type of conflict. Um, and, yeah, so... in in, and it's also like a microcosm too for what I think happens at a lot, lar- a lot of larger uh, publishers that have uh, individual teams where you may have a ad ops team that like wants to run the video ads because somebody's you know shaking them down saying we need more revenue and they're saying hey this is a this is a button I can push on this, maybe not understanding how it might affect something long term, but knowing that you know the audio play video ads get paid pay out pretty nice, and then you've got uh, the the writers that are you know, that don't care if the publication makes any money from ads. They, like, dang it, they want to, like, put out great editorial content. Um,
1: and you've got the readers, too.
0: And then you've got the readers, too. Um, I think this is why you need something in the middle that can balance everything. Um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of machine learning for this to, like, understand how things affect each other and dilute each other. Um, and also something that can look at things with a larger historical perspective, it's really hard when someone is revenue driven to look at things month over month and do the right thing. You really need to zoom out and say, like long term, how is this going to impact things, or how could we make a change that short term maybe makes us less money, but long term makes us more. Um, and then from the writer's perspective as well, you have to be able to 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 compromise and say, okay, like we don't want to we don't want to have we don't have this type of material out there. We've got some optimizations in place that are going to fix this, but at the same time, like if you if you're really beholden to what users want, like now it's time for you to look at some data. So, like maybe those articles that you really like that are really hard hitting in your opinion, um, maybe people really don't like them, and that is unfortunate for journalism in a lot of cases. Um, so, I, I think that there's always a happy medium with all of this stuff, but uh, you don't get to find it when uh, you have. Fifty-one percent of the business operated by one party, and the other forty-nine percent owned by another. I mean, when this stuff happens, it's almost always this type of thing too, where you have management that gets to make the decisions with majority ownership, and then you also ha- and then you've got usually creative editorial staff that has access to like publishing, and they're usually. I mean, that was the Snopes things as well. S- Snopes launched Save Snopes, and like, it was you know. The editorial team's like, we still have access to the CMS, so we're gonna do our thing. You
1: know? <laughs> All right. And our last topic we have on deck today is the BERT update from Google. So Google has announced its biggest update made to search in the past five years by releasing BERT, which which stands for Bidirectional encoder representations from transformers. That's such a mouthful. Um, so, long story short, BERT is meant to help longer, more conversational search queries by processing words in relation to other words in the query rather than just one by one in order of the search query. So this particular, this is particularly useful in understanding the intent behind search queries. Um, Danny Sullivan from Google said that there's nothing to optimize when it comes to BERT, nor um, anything for anyone to be rethinking. So a pretty um, familiar message. <laughs> yeah. And
0: it, I mean, isn't it ironic that they're like, um, they, uh, they say this is a significant change and here's how great this changes and here's how it works machine learning natural language machine learning and by the way like don't don't do anything with any of this information we're just we want you to know i i sort of feel um you they're kind of trying to have their cake and eat it too where they're trying to be transparent but at the same time sticking with their classic like we're not going to give you any helpful information in terms of like We talked about this earlier today internally. We were talking about like that there's no good objective information about SEO, meaning like do X and X will improve by Y percent or whatever.
1: Right. I saw um, an interesting article from, what is it, Barry Schwartz, I think? Yeah. Yeah, about how this is Google claiming to be one of the biggest search updates, but you know, the results or the impact of it seems small in terms of people haven't been really complaining about giant traffic like drops or things like that. So I thought that was kind of interesting. To
0: me, that what that means is that Google hasn't really done it yet. Hmm. That means Google says a lot of times we're doing this and it's going to happen on this date, and then it doesn't. I know that from the ad side, working as a partner, and I won't list any specific things, but first price auction. But they may say that something is going to roll out on a certain date and it's going to be 10%. But in reality, it's still three. And then, like five days later, it's then it's 10. And then they'll say, then all of a sudden you'll see it be 100%. And a week later, they'll say it's happening now. So sometimes it happens way before they say, and sometimes it happens way after they say. Right. And it kind of depends on what they think they know.
1: All in all, do you think this is. Maybe a good thing for publishers, though, because if the search engine can understand the queries better and serve results that are better suited for that query, then in theory, maybe bounce rates would be lower because, you know, users are getting the information that they're actually looking for first and things like that. Or is it kind of just too early to say? I look at you. With
0: Google <laughs> hat on. No, I'm, I, I, I was texting with, uh, with a publisher this weekend that asked me, what do you think? And my answer was theoretically, I think it's good. How Google makes some, what what Google builds and what what they actually push out are often different things. But theoretically, this should be better. I'm a big fan of um, uh, Google's cloud. Their natural language stuff is the best by far, and this is something we've looked at. Um, but I will say this: um, if you're a publisher. You really need to be doing a better job of thinking about your content in terms of uh, answering answering questions and really getting to the, the core of. If you have, let's say, you rank number, you put a, push out some content. You need to go look at that content to see later on where it ranks, and really look at the SERPs. Like it, this sounds really day oney stuff, but like figure out like what else is on that page. Because what else on that page is going to tell you exactly what Google thinks those people are searching for. So if your article is like slightly different where you're like, well, I really didn't write this for people that were looking to build a koi pond. I was writing it for people that were interested in um, how much space they need for a koi pond in their yard. Um, And so then you can basically say, okay, well, the traffic that I'm getting through this, I need to really add some content here about how to Build a koi pond, and I hate these conversations because they just get so uh, like you're, It's very dumb. It's like very matter of fact, and I think as a publisher, what you enjoy doing in a lot of cases is writing great content, and it would be great if that's all you had to do. Um, but the truth is, is it's supply and demand, and people are searching for things. And sometimes the stuff that you're creating that you really want people to want, they don't want. And it comes back to what we were talking about journalism earlier. And so sometimes you have to be able to ask yourself, how much am I unwilling to invest in terms of time, money, resources to do something that I believe in versus something that I'm going to use to make money? And with anything, there's a happy medium.
1: Right. Well, that's all the topics I have for this week. Uh, is there anything going on on your end?
0: No, that's that's all we've got. We've got uh, Intelligence lending coming up here at Google in... Almost two weeks now. Looky, mm-hmm. looky. And uh, we're almost full. We're like at the brim. So if it is something you've thought about attending before, uh, I'd strongly encourage you to do so. Next year, we've got a number of uh, dates on the calendar. We'll probably announce those sometime in the future. But um, if you have an opportunity and you're around to attend those things, I think this one is uh, 14 November. Use my EU style of date there. Notice that. Um I would encourage you to do it because I think these are going to be harder and harder for publishers to attend. And, um, yeah, the feedback is always really great. And I think there's no better way to learn sometimes to get in a room full of other publishers and experts and, and kind of see what's going on. I think that's what people like about it.
1: Right. Well, that's all we've got for this week.
0: Yep. We want to thank everyone for joining us once again on The Publisher Lab.